I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, The Merchant of Venice. I hate this play so much. I just have to open with that. I feel like there was a time in my life when I existed in a place of sort of ambivalence and ambiguity towards this play. And then right before the pandemic, one of the very last, I mean, the very last kind of theatrical activity I did before Mm -hmm. uh, 2020 punched us all in the head was back-to-back workshops of this and the Jew of Malta. And by the end of that experience, I just virulently hated this play and I can Mm. no longer (laughs) Mm -hmm. reconcile myself to it. I hate the way it has sort of Jewish Shakespearean theater artists in some kind of thrall where they feel like Mm. they have to deal with it. I hate the way that non-Jewish people talk about it and relate to it and use it. I just hate everything about the way it exists in the world. And also I hate a lot of the play and I hate most of the characters. Yeah, I think that if any play, (laughs) if any play deserves it, I think this one does deserve a sort of hardcore, it can, yeah, it it deserves everything we can throw at it. I mean, I'm curious about that experience that you had. You were there in a a scholarly capacity. Yeah, sort of scholar dramaturg. It was a a workshop process that was kind of... a kind of pre-production considering preparing the two plays to be performed perhaps in combination perhaps well really it was the Merchant of Venice was definitely going to happen and the Mm -hmm. Jew of Malta was maybe or maybe not going to happen and it was just like experimenting with Jewish directors largely Jewish casts like with Mm -hmm. them that's fascinating because like was there was part of the purpose of that activity like a serious interrogation of like should we you know, like I'm, was there, I mean, and especially because as you say, like with a lot of Jewish artists and stuff and you being Jewish yourself, like, did you feel, did you feel like that was on the table? The question of like, okay, we're here, we're doing this play. Uh, like, should one? You have asked the question I probably shouldn't <laughs> answer, which is, Let's I think <laughs> part of what made the process so difficult and interesting was for the Jew of Malta, that question was on the table. And thus we were able to have a really interesting conversation for yeah. the Merchant of Venice on some level, level it was not because I see. It, it was pretty clear it was going to be programmed in some capacity. So mm-hmm. there was more of a feeling of how can we make it doable? Or like, how can we convince ourselves we can do this? And I don't right. need to put it like that because I do think that like a lot of Jewish artists do sincerely have questions about this play. I just hate yeah. that they do. I hate that they have, we have been convinced there's something there that we must feel compelled to grapple with and excavate mm-hmm. because I just right. think there isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I remember, I remember we talked about it a little bit at the time, I think when you were doing it. And I think what I remember that you said was it's just sort of like you can kind of lead yourself, you can you can kind of uh, explore the questions in a satisfactory enough way and think that you're getting somewhere, but then you get to the ending. Yeah. And it's just the thing of like the play ends the way that the play ends, you know, and so that's what it is. And it's really interesting because obviously, uh, you know, 
the other, as we texted each other right before beginning this record, um, it's also really, really gay. And like, yes. you know, terrible, but also gay, our new motto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I think I'm going to try and like restrain myself from ranting too much about the anti-Semitism because I, I think it is part of the kind of overall melange of issues that this play is dealing with. Like, I think it's relevant, yes. but I also think that like, I will easily get derailed. So I'll try to focus, but sometimes I just won't be able to restrain myself, especially when it comes to my deep loathing for Antonio as a character. Um, yeah, and I think that's okay. I think that's okay. I think that has to be part of sort of any responsible discussion about this play, really. It's just that like the frustration of like, there are, I mean, in any such play, and we haven't talked about Taming the Shrew yet, but obviously we're going to. Yeah. Um, and we have talked about Othello, which is complicated in a, in, a, in a similar way. I feel like those are sort of the big three that are kind of in the in the mix for this kind of discussion the mm -hmm. most is, mm -hmm. is the question of like, does the, like in a programming sense and an artistic sense, like do the, does the good outweigh the bad? Like does yeah. the, do, does the play um, in some way pay you back, sort of pay its rent, complicate your life in a positive way rather than just pointing out something terrible about society that in the year of our Lord 2022, we all already know. Yes. And I thought was something that really jumped out at me in this sort of spate of Merchants of Venice that happened in this kind of winter, where mm -hmm. I felt like all of them, there were some in, there's one in London, there were two in New York or one in New York. There were just yes. like a couple high profile ones all over the place. And kind of all of them got good reviews with a tone of these illuminate the brutality of anti-Semitism. And you're sort of like, wow, we know. I didn't know. That's yeah. never happened before. And it was just like, I just felt so weary and get so weary with the idea of like hearing, mm. sorry, this is the rant, but like- No, it's good. You know, and I know that some of the artistic directors who make those choices are Jewish, but like mm. this idea mm. that it's like, it's important to like remind people that anti-Semitism existed or like it's important to be like, we can't, we can't erase this like anti-Semitic play. It's like, I'm not erasing it. I just don't want to watch it anymore. I don't want to watch Shylock right. suffer again. Right, 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 right. And, you know, I think it's, it's in any kind of artistic question, programming question, it's like, it's the thing of who, who do you imagine the audience to be? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the question of like, who is the play for? Who needs to hear this message? Absolutely. And, and who are you like unwittingly bashing over the head with it? Or who yeah, doesn't need it? <laughs> who, yeah, who are you assuming isn't in the room? And I've had the same conversation with people about Othello and the way yes. that it's like, it, you know, it's about racism and illuminates racism. And it's like, okay, but yes. who are you assuming who is in the audience who needs to be taught that lesson? And who That's are you right. assuming therefore isn't there because they already like, I, like, why are you assuming the people who already know that aren't there? 100%. Yeah. It's so, so interesting. It's like, you know, the, I, I have directed Othello years and years ago, but the, I, I worked on it. I, I assistant directed it, um, in 2015 at, at Colorado in, at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. And it was really mm -hmm. interesting because, um, I remember having a conversation with Peter Macon, who played Othello, who I had seen do it years before at OSF. He's played Othello several times at several major regional houses in America. And we had a conversation about that, about like, 
why he keeps coming back to the role, even though it's such a complicated play. And it was also for me sort of like backlit by the fact that the couple of actors of color in the production were like basically the only people of color for miles because Boulder, Colorado is such a white place. And so I thought about that question a lot when working on that production because the audience was consistently so overwhelmingly white that it was like, okay, well, maybe you do need to have racism pointed out to you, but like exactly the question that you just asked about like, who isn't in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like the same question really here in the UK, like it's one thing to do. It's one thing for Jeffrey Horowitz to produce the Merchant of Venice in Brooklyn. And it's another thing to do it in the UK where conversations about anti-Semitism are so different. And there isn't the same sort of like the Jews are all at the theater uh, kind of energy and like the assumption of who your audience is going to be. But then again, we keep doing it in New York City anyway. So like, you know. Right. And, you know, that production, just to just to say it, uh, that is the one that I recently saw. Um, so yeah. Aaron Arbus uh, directed a production of Merchant of Venice at Theatre for the New Audience here in Brooklyn um, pretty recently. And it was a co-pro with um, Shakespeare Theatre Company in D.C., where Simon Godwin is now artistic director. And after it finished its run in Brooklyn, it went to D.C. and ran there for a while. So same company, both places. So it was like a major American, you know, sort of lort production of of Merchant of Venice. And it was incredibly gay and also um, complicated kind of racially in the casting and like lots of different things that like um, it made a lot of choices that are so fresh in my mind because I just saw it. I couldn't help but think about it when preparing for this. And I'll probably reference it a bunch because of how gay it was, but also because Mm -hmm. of how it tried to wrestle with like some of the things we're talking about. Yeah. So speaking of that production, we kind of glossed over it at the end of last week because we were running quite long, but let's talk a little bit about why, what the connection was between Two Noble Kinsmen and The Merchant of Venice leading into this week because part of it was that you referenced that production. Um, But I think also more broadly, it was on my mind as a play. I mean, it was really, we were kind of talking about how Tunable Kinsman was sort of the last of the like, what do I do with my old friendships when I yeah. need to marry plays? And I think actually the last of those in terms of our chronology is Merchant of Venice. This feels like mm-hmm. the one remaining play that is kind of about that question. And that was why right. it came to mind for me. Mm, right. The fundamental question of like the, the, the romantic shape of man who has an incredibly powerful bond with another man who then falls in love and the tug of war between those two things. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And this is a major like one of the most um, one of the most visible and textually explicit triangles of that kind. Yeah, I would say absolutely. for sure. I mean, what it has going for it is is definitely that. I mean, the shape is clear. That's not yes. the problem. And yeah. Yeah. I thought of it, so I referenced it at the end of the Two Noble Kinsmen episode because of, we were talking about like how kind of earth shaking to the theater landscape it might be if you actually did a production of Two Noble Kinsmen that was as erotic as Two Noble Kinsmen. And I was thinking about how kind of like just stark and politically sort of, you know, just um, how daring, which is a crazy thing to say, because it feels like it should be common now, but how daring it would feel to just like watch a couple of dudes make out in a Shakespeare play. And I was like, you know, I did just see that mm-hmm. in this production of Merchant of Venice. And it was, I think, the first time I had ever seen that, which I remember when I when I saw it and I mentioned that to you, you weren't surprised. I think you had seen maybe some productions in the UK where where or yeah, somewhere. There was one at the RSC um, 
a couple years ago and then they put it on the BBC during the pandemic that got quite explicitly romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting. Maybe we can talk about whether it happened in the same places, yes. in the same ways. Um, and I am um, the production at the uh, Globe's Indoor Theater this winter, which was one of this kind of series that ended up inadvertently oh, happening, right. also right. did some things. I actually haven't seen it yet. I need to go watch like an archival copy. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's a thing that sort of it has been around, but also, I mean, I think it's just a case of the UK does more Shakespeare. So there's more, more innovation in those terms. Sure. But I mean, it is like kind of one of the frustrating things about this play. And in some ways why I get the desire to find a way to do it because there are yeah. really rereading it. I was like, yeah, this is from a, like our, from our perspective as looking yeah. for the gay ones. There's yeah. so much here. It's yeah. so much about capitalism. Um, yes. It's about a lot of interesting things. It's just unfortunately yeah. subsumed under an unremovable patina of anti-Semitism. <laughs> That's exactly the right way to put it. An unremovable patina of anti-Semitism. You're like in there as a conservator with your little Q-tip trying to scrub it off. And then you realize, oh no, I've scrubbed the face off of the character because the anti-Semitism is just unseparatable from the story. Because that's such a perfect way to describe it. That then becomes the question of like, okay, if it's, if it's not removable, if, if to scrub off the, the ugliness, you scrub off the face of the play, then the question is like, well, then what people have seemed to be doing instead is to be like, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to really highlight all of the nastiness and we're going to really show you the face of the play. And it's like, well, that is, is, is that a, is that an overcorrection as much as trying to scrub it away? Yeah. I mean, because I can just like, I I think for me, it just like, and this is, these are terms like as a scholar, it's hard, like, I think to, admit when your relationship to a Shakespeare play is purely emotional. Like, I feel like yeah. I should have like more of a sense of detachment from this. And with this play, I just can't. The worst mm. and most alienating experiences I've ever had in theaters have been watching The Merchant of Venice and mm. getting to act four and act five and just feeling such visceral discomfort and rage and like, yeah, the watching in- inappropriate responses from other audience members that just make me feel just mm-hmm. like a freak and horrible. And mm-hmm. having experienced that multiple times, I've just hit this point where it's like, okay, yeah. is that is that what this production's meant to do? I'm the person who's meant to be left feeling that way so that like yeah. non-Jewish audience members can like learn something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't, right. I am no longer willing to put myself through that for this play. That's a really, really important point. And is the is the experience you're talking about like watching people laugh at Shylock? Yeah, usually. And also just yeah. the way that the play itself mm. moves on into act five and like there's no space given for any kind of acknowledgement or resolution. And like, you basically have to keep caring about the characters who mm. have done all this shit to him because mm-hmm. otherwise yeah. act five is, inter- I mean, act five is already interminably boring. And also yes. when you hate everybody, it's even more boring. And even when productions try to lean into like, no, they're all horrible people. You're like, okay, but therefore I don't care what happens to them. So why am I watching them for another half hour? And like, even when they try, when productions try with varying degrees of success to kind of tack on a way for Jessica to become this vector to kind of yeah. express awareness of what has happened. It's still like, yes, but Portia's still talking. That's like right. I still have to listen to these people. 
That's right. That's right. And so the last sort of question to put on the table that I kind of let, thought that I had while you were just saying that before we like do the summary and do the thing. Yeah, is yeah, just yeah. We like, had to get this out of the way. We, we, we had to. We had to. Um, it's just the question of like, do you think fundamentally the reason the end is broken is that no matter what plays, what productions try to do to uh, restore to sympathize with Shylock, the play is built dramaturgically like he's the villain. Yes. Yeah, I think that you have to let go of your sympathy for him in order to reinvest in where the play actually goes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Mm. something, the reason I feel bad that I I wasn't able to see it for various Mm. reasons, um, but the recent Globe production ended with the trial um and I did it cut act five yeah and so I don't yeah so I'm really I'm really eager to kind of go back and watch that and see kind of how that worked and what they did that's certainly a solution to the specific problem we're describing right now yes um I don't know yeah I don't know what it kind of does to the play or the narrative or kind of to the character like it certainly is an acknowledgement that like Portia and Bassanio don't matter yeah um so that's, that's amazing. Interesting. And um, I oh. know that there was a stage, I mean, in this workshop that I did where we talked about starting with the trial and kind of getting oh. it over with and having the rest sort of exist as this kind of flashback that would then eventually bring us back to where we began again mm. in a similar interest of like, how can we almost like, mm-hmm. we know what you came to see kind of feeling. Yes. Um, which over the course of the workshop, like we never quite, I think it could have worked. We didn't quite find it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's about how do you, how do you fight the play's own dramaturgy in terms of who Shakespeare thinks Shylock is? And I don't think Shakespeare, uh, I mean, I can mm-hmm. say more about this when we get to mm-hmm. maybe the scenes in question, but like, I don't think yeah. Shakespeare thinks Shylock is sympathetic enough to be mm-hmm. not the villain. Yeah, or at least like, or at least uh, Shakespeare doesn't think that Bassanio and Antonio and Portia are horrible people. Yes, that is really the more important thing. He may not think Shylock's a horrible person, but he definitely doesn't think they are. No, that's right. Because, yeah, I think he has, I think I think the reason people are always like, no, but it's fine, is that there is a, like Shylock's own description of his feelings and his situation is invariably articulate and beautiful and deeply felt. So people are mm-hmm. like, well, that's like, so the play sides with him, but it's like, it doesn't really, he describes mm-hmm. his feelings beautifully, but also so does everyone else. Yeah. And also like his feelings are still kind of from the Christian point of view of the play, mm-hmm. like not the idea. I mean, like the whole eye for an eye is like not... <laughs> a good quote unquote, like that is not something that sort of culturally would be kind of validated. And there's this great, I tried to find it and then inevitably couldn't, there's this column I want to say in like the New Yorker, Mm. um, where the writer was talking about listening to like an audio book of the Merchant of Venice with her son and they're Jewish. Mm. And, you know, she was sort of like, well, you know, don't you find that speech sympathetic? And the son, the teenage son was like, no, that's the Marvel villain speech where Thanos talks about how half the population has to die for these really articulate intelligent mm-hmm. sympathetic sounding reasons and you as the audience are supposed to demonstrate your empathy and intelligence by recognizing that that's bullshit right right 
Right, right, right. And so I don't know. I mean, it's such a complicated, like, it's such a complicated play thematically for so many reasons. We're going to get into how like love and money and all of that are sort of connected because it's brilliant in that way. But also like for a play that essentially does culminate in a courtroom drama, it's like the question of who deserves justice and what does that look like is really kind of like you can't, it goes back always to this thing that I've said before in different times and have struggled with, with different productions of different plays is like, you actually can't um, rewire the, the sympathetic dramaturgy that Shakespeare has set up. You can't actually make a play a different play. And the thing is like, because you would have to, it's too delicately braided. You would have to go, you start in one place and you change that. And you don't know that you've completely, destroyed a ripple that's supposed to come from or go to a different part in the play and it's like you can't they're just really well constructed they're Mm -hmm. just not always constructed to an end that we want to see yeah and I think that in the case of this play and this was like the really brilliant point that actually one of the actors made in this workshop is that the question of justice and mercy is fundamentally tied to the question of Judaism in this period. The whole idea mm. is that the difference between Christianity and Judaism from the protect, from the perspective of like a mm-hmm. baseline anti-Semitic early modern like person mm-hmm. is that Jesus introduced mm-hmm. the concept of mercy. And yeah. so to kind of reenact the trial of Jesus through the kind of yeah. persecution of this Jewish person is like, there's no way to separate that thematic interest. It's a Jewish character for a reason. Mm. Rather That's than just fascinating. some guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. And and when we get to it, of course, it's like productions and and th- there is there is something so Jesus-y about Antonio's almost sacrifice, obviously, yeah. that it's like that is what it is. And so then you end up like, no matter how sympathetic you've made Shylock, he still ends up being the guy who is like baying for the blood of this like of the Christ man figure. of the Christ figure, exactly. And Antonio invariably becomes that almost in the staging. Yeah. So I mean, it's yes, so, often literally in this RSC production, we'll talk about like very literally. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's mad complicated, but for our purposes, complicatedly, it's also extremely homosexual. So, so let's, let's yeah, do the summary. Fully 20 minutes on that. Let's dive in. That's um, great. But also, you know, it'll be fine. Um, yeah. yeah. So the Merchant of Venice, it's set in Venice. There's some merchants. <laughs> um, <laughs> namely... Antonio, the actual title character, confusingly, mm-hmm. um, who was sad and gay, um, just he, uh, experiences a nebulous sadness, um, which is his homosexuality. <laughs> his we'll gayness. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's in love with his bestie, Bassanio. Bassanio comes to Antonio and is like, I need a loan so that I can go marry this heiress who lives in Belmont. And Antonio is like, I will give everything I have to you. I'll take out a loan from this horrible Jewish moneylender Shylock and fund this journey for you because all my ships are away, but they'll be back and it'll be fine. Um, So he arranges to borrow money from Shylock, Shylock who hates Antonio because Antonio is a virulent anti-Semite who spits on him in the street for no reason, um, is like, hee hee, this'll be funny. I'll lend you money, but instead of a usual bargain, how about if you default, I get a pound of your flesh. And Antonio's like, haha, that's very funny. What a gentlemanly thing to offer because this will all be fine. Let's do it. Inevitably, it is not fine. His ships all sink in the sea. Shylock is separately in a pretty bad mood because his daughter, Jessica, runs away and elopes with a Christian boy. 
um, and his random weird comic relief servant also fucks off to go join a Christian household instead. Um, and so when the time comes, he's not really in a forgiving mood and is like, no, I'm going to literally take the pound of flesh from you. Um, I will accept no other arrangement. I want the letter of my bond. Um, so Bassanio, meanwhile, goes off to Portia in Belmont, who's trapped in a horrible fairy tale, whereby because of her father's will, she can only get married if one of her suitors chooses the correct casket of three caskets, a gold, a silver, and a lead one. And we see some people choose the wrong ones before Bassanio comes and chooses the right one. But then he gets word that all this stuff's going down in um, Venice and that there's going to be a trial to figure out, like, can this bond be good like is this actually going to happen and he rushes back to help Antonio and bring money to try and pay off Shylock to be like here's you know here's your money back you don't need to do this um Portia and her servant Nerissa inexplicably decide they need to meddle in this so they disguise themselves as male lawyers to represent Antonio in this case and show up as well everybody there's a it's one of these plays where act four is one scene massive trial scene um where things go back and forth. It seems like uh, Shylock has won, but Portia finds a loophole whereby <laughs> um, you can have a pound of flesh, but you can't shed any blood. So of course it's impossible to cut out a pound of flesh. He's like, fine, I'll take the money. And they're like, no, you rejected the money. Um, and also then it like spirals into, oh, and as a Jewish person, an alien to the state, you tried to kill a citizen. So actually all your goods are confiscated and you have to convert to Christianity now hooray um all your money goes to your daughter who we like better um and then Portia having kind of seen over the course of the trial how much I mean we'll get into it but how yep. much Antonio means to Bassanio decides she needs to play one last trick so in her guise as a lawyer she convinces Bassanio to give her the ring that she gave him which he promised never to give away and Antonio's like bro you gotta so uh Bassanio does and then they get back to Belmont Portia's like you gave my ring away how dare you and then it all gets revealed tediously that like no I was the lawyer and blue 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 well, you laid with the lawyer's clerk and you know all these jokes about sleeping together um they tell Jessica she's got all her dad's money so everything's awesome and um everyone that's the play that's the end of the play and they all live happily ever after in Belmont and Antonio's there too. The end. It's as my, as my, my subheading on my Google doc says the merchant of Venice or everyone is an asshole. It really <laughs> is. I mean, it like, this is what we were just talking about is the problem is like, I've heard about this production that they did actually also at Tifana several years, like years and years ago, oh. where it was sort of modern set. There was a spate of the time when everybody was setting this in Las Vegas for some reason yes people um, yes I guess because money um yes but I think that was one of them it was certainly modern set and I was talking to somebody who'd seen it and she was like yeah money. like everybody like all the young characters were, like on their cell phones all the time which was like yeah. deeply annoying and really conveyed what deeply annoying people they are but yes. again the play doesn't work if you hate everybody and think they're deeply annoying it's so funny it's so so funny so yeah there let's Let's get to, let's, let's get go. into Let's get one. in. I know we've, we've delayed and delayed. So no, we're good. We're good. 
The gayness starts with line one, like, which is nice. The gayness starts starts with line one. So we've talked about this line before because we referenced it when we spoke about Don John and Much Ado About Nothing. Um, The first line of this play is, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. And we talked about it because that scene in Much Ado starts with, uh, you know, somebody saying, um, uh, you know, why are you thus? my lord, why are you thus out of measure sad? Right. And it's the same thing. Don John's response is there is no measure in the occasion that breeds. Therefore, the sadness is without limit. And it's like a nebulous sadness. And so I pulled a chunk of the text because it's good. Antonio starts the play with, in sooth, I know not why I'm so sad. It, uh, it wearies me. You say it wearies you, but how I caught it, found it, or came by it, what stuff tis made of, whereof it is born, I am to learn. And such a want wit sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself. And so he starts the play with his friends loafing about just basically like, my, I have a sadness of a strange nebulous character. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what it attaches itself to. And it's keeping me from understanding myself. It's that you're gay. It's that you're gay, homeboy. And like, yeah, I mean, it. and this sort of gets reinforced throughout the play as these same mm-hmm. two characters, Solanio and Salarino, something just interchangeably annoying. It's horrible. Names. Yeah. It's yeah. really just why, Shakespeare, why? Um, <laughs> they kind of pop up as the sort of chorus to like tell us about things that happened off stage mm-hmm. and their conversation with each other. One of the topics they love to talk about is how much Bassanio love, how much Antonio loves Bassanio. And yeah. like they sort of go and we meet Bassanio in this scene as well. And he shows yes. up and kind of we, and all the kind of sadness and antipathy that Antonio's expressing in this opening speech. Once Bassanio shows up, it's like, there's the passion. There's the thing yeah. you care about. There's the thing you're willing to like, give your money to and sacrifice for is Bassanio's happiness. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's just so instantaneous. Also, I, I fell out because it's when Bassanio enters the scene, Graciano or some, some dick who's hanging out with Antonio turns and says, here comes Bassanio, your most noble kinsman. Kinsman. And I was like, hey, noble kinsman. Mm. But yeah, no, he comes in and imme- and immediately asks for money. Like the yes. plot start, the, the engine of the plot starts, you know, just immediately. And it's Bassanio yeah. going, I heard about this lady. I've gone to meet this lady. You know, I need yeah. some money to win this lady. Um, so I wanted, before we move into that, I just, I wanted to kind of root myself. So I read one article, which was all I could bring myself to read about this beloved play. There's been lots of writing about <laughs> Um, queerness in this play, and I'm sorry for not citing more of it. But this is from Arthur J. Arthur L. Little Jr., who's a very great scholar, um, and he writes: uh, within the aggressively heteronormative worlds of Venice and especially Belmont, queer speaking seems always necessarily an act of not only speaking but performing queer quote unquote suffering, articulating and performing lack as a constitutive part of queer desire. And I think that's such an interesting way of framing kind of what. Because part of the sort of context of what we meet Antonio talking about is like all his friends are like, but you're so rich, like all your business ventures are so successful. And that's sort of then also what Bassanio comes in and is like, hey, buddy, you have tons of money. You have all these ventures. You have so much kind of potential and future and like forward and outward looking interests. And yet Mm. there's this sadness and this lack. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. The performance of queer suffering is an amazing kind of scholarly headline to sort of hang over this play. Mm -hmm. And especially as you're saying, it's like you have so much, what is, so what's wrong with you? You have all of these things that a man should have. So what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah no, it's really, it's, yeah, yeah. And it just, I actually, it just made me realize that like part of what's happening in this first scene and part of what's happening in this play that's so interesting is kind of, Bassanio comes into the play having already realized the thing that a lot of the other characters we've been talking about take the course of the play to realize in terms of what they have to do regarding marriage. So like Mm -hmm. Bassanio comes in and already has this very mercenary perspective of like, I met this hot rich girl. This is an amazing opportunity for me because I'm broke. Um, Will you invest in my business venture? which is wooing Portia. Heterosexual love. Yeah, Yeah. and so it's like a sort of parallel to it's like, okay, yeah, you know, Antonio, you have all your business ventures. This is my business venture. Yes, Um, this woman. Yes, yes. And I think, yeah, both in terms of the way that it's like, they both have like the very different tones of like, Antonio has these empty kind of what turn out to be futureless, doomed vessels he's sent forth. And- (sighs) Bassanio has this kind of hopefully fertile heterosexual capitalist kind of venture capitalist pursuit that he's going on to this island where he'll claim this treasure. Um, That's so good. That's (laughs) so good. The idea, the idea of Antonio's ventures being futureless, barren, you know, and then he's sad, like, Mm -hmm. but, um, I feel like I had another, another element of that I was going to say, no, 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 but I've now forgotten what it was, but that works too. Pretend that was the end of the sentence. So, so sorry. Well, the, the, the love as love. (laughs) Please interrupt me to compliment my ideas anytime. Well, love as venture capital is actually such a foundational idea of this play. It's so interesting that, and you know, so one of the things that was aesthetically sort of rewarding in that sense in the Tafana production that I just saw was it was set in a in a very contemporary kind of look, um, like in the costume design and in the, I don't remember if there were cell phones, if they, if there were, um, no, there were, but they weren't like over, it wasn't like a really technologically heavy kind of thing, but the, um, the aesthetic of Antonio and to a degree Bassanio and all of like Antonio's kind of hangers on was a very like sort of, um, Wall Street crossed with sort of like crypto bro. Like, you know, they were like, he was like, he's like, my ships are NFTs. You know what I mean? Horrible, like, but like perfect. They, they were oh, so perfect. They were all wearing like, they and like huge assholes of that exact variety. Like they yeah. were all wearing like really, really sharp suits, but like over, over like really stylized sort of streetwear sweatshirts and like chains. And they all had like bright white sneakers. And like, they were just that bro, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, and I've just actually remembered the second part of it that I was going to say, which is that like, for me, it's the, and it comes with being that bro. What's interesting about Bassanio is his self-awareness about the choice he's making. Like he literally goes to his best friend and is like, I know what I'm doing. And you like, I, and I think there's a, in the film version with Ray Fiennes as Bassanio and Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons. Yeah. I was going to say it. And then I was like, no, that can't be right. Yeah. Jeremy Irons is Antonio. It's like, there's this clear breakup feeling of like, Hey buddy, I know we've had this relationship, but like, I'm going to be moving on to pursue Mm -hmm. something new. And it's just so interesting that it's like, 
the and it's left for kind of Antonio and not in a very active way, sort of passively in the background through the story to kind of go through the emotional struggles that like Palamon and Archite went through. Right. Whereas to kind of look ahead a little bit, what's interesting about Bassanio is he begins in this state of like, I'm making this choice. I understand why I'm making it. I understand the economic need to make it. Mm-hmm. And then the emotional consequences of it hit him. In kind of later. Yeah, yeah. In a delayed way. Yeah. And then he has to kind of answer the question of like, how much did this relationship mean to you? Which yes. of these things will you prioritize? But unfortunately for him, he's already made the choice. Yeah. Right. Because he's critically, we'll get to this, but he is, he is married, but not consummated when he Mm -hmm. goes to the trial to save Antonio, which is a fascinating place for a young hot bisexual to be. So um, (laughs) that's one of the things I loved this production thinking is I was like, everybody's just desperate to bang Bassanio, like everyone on stage. It's so funny. Hot bisexuals in your area. Yeah, no, truly. (laughs) Looking for moneyed wives. (laughs) Money. (laughs) Looking for rich heiresses and also um, investment daddies. (laughs) But yeah, it's both. He's such a hoe. But anyways, um, this scene between the two of them, you're right that in some productions, I forgot about that scene in that movie. It does have a breakup feel. But the, the, the text that I pulled, you know, is like, well, a couple pieces, but I think before Bassanio even comes in, Antonio has this line to Graciano that I love where he says, I hold the world, but as the world, Graciano, a stage where every man must play his part and mine a sad one. And I love that because it's sort of the like, it doesn't matter, like, this is just my role. It's just my role. Like thinking about this queer suffering, the thing of just like, no, I'm over here suffering. It's my role. But then when, when Bassiano is like, please give me all your money. Um, he says, he says to him, my purse, my person, my extremist means lie all unlocked to your occasions, which is. Yeah. I mean, so to maybe use that as a bit of a transition, I have another quote from little that can lead us into talking about the Portia half of this act um, where he says, um, if dowries, flesh and blood are the most important markers of early modern heterosexual marriage rights and rights like R-I-T-E and R-I-G-H-T, then Antonio takes on heterosexual marriage at its most sacrosanct sites and proceeds to outstrip each of them. Unlike Portia's seemingly infinite dowry on display from her father's coffers, for example, Antonio's is not only from his own limited account, but from a stash for which he has bartered his own body. Yes. And this is the thing exactly is like the note that I have uh, in my in my notes at this point is just like my purse, my person, my extremist means like from the beginning, it's literally about a man giving his body for his friend, which is it's his dowry for their marriage. Right. And it has, of course, both a deeply erotic connotation and also a deeply religious one. Yeah. And also a paternal one like it's the father who gives the dowry but like Mm -hmm. it is a dowry of his own body and the return he wants is ultimately like this idea of him being on a stage like in act four the and three and four the thing he wants is for Bassanio to come watch him to come see him well, right. And it's it's sort of the ultimate, like, that's why he ends up always looking and feeling so Christ-like, is it's the thing of, like, the ultimate queer suffering is just sort of, like, watch me, watch me give up my body for you. Just bear witness. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we also meet Portia and her kind of dilemma in this mm-hmm. act. And I think it's just interesting in this context of, like, 
really spending the first act setting up marriage as a commodity, like really mm-hmm. reinforcing Bassanio's really self-aware mercenary perspective mm-hmm. on all this mm-hmm. and meeting Portia, basically just talking about like, I have no choice. And she really, she, it's really interesting. She, we meet Antonio talking about sadness and we meet Portia talking about how weary she is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the sense of like, there's no romance here. This is a weird dead guy's game. Um, where you have to meet mysterious criteria and then you get married. And that is what marriage (laughs) is about. (laughs) Protecting her money. Protecting her money and also um, leaving her, programming an entire lack of agency on her part into the whole system. Even more so than would ordinarily be present. Yeah. Like that's the thing is it's like, it's extra lack of agency for the woman. And, about, mm-hmm. and again, just like explicitly about making sure her inheritance is safe. Yeah. Like, it's not even about making sure you get a good guy that they kind of say that, but like, really it's about like, who's going to treat the commodity that is Portia yeah. and her money well. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so are we kind of fluidly transitioning into act two now? Yeah. I mean, cause that's really, and then like, so at the end of act one is then when we get Antonio yeah. being again, just like a virulent anti-Semite and making this deal with. <laughs> yes. Shylock and right. again this sense of like what is he what is he impawning for his dowry yup yeah and, yeah yeah um yeah. but yeah so yeah let's move let's move then into act two um yeah, yeah. And act two is like so a, a couple of different sort of big pieces of plot advance in act two and one of which Very long. is it is very long and like lots of small scenes that of course, like sometimes get cut in production because Lancelot uh, Gabo, uh, Shylock's servant is a mouthy bastard and mm-hmm. he does some very fun bits, but some of them go on for ages and it's just like full clown shit that like doesn't totally matter. And also um, like just to sidebar them among the many problems with this play, uh, mm-hmm. really ableist jokes about blind people for a while. Yeah, <laughs> for, yeah, you're just like cool. We, I mean, we we've got the racism, which we'll talk we about do. in a moment. We've got some yep. anti-Semitism. We've got some ableism. Like, what's left? What more can you throw into this trash just play? Sprinkle it all in. Sprinkle it all. Sprinkle it all in, and sort of bake. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a it's an offensive casserole. But yeah. Um, so Act Two is kind of like you get to see the Portia, um, you know, inheritance game in action when she has to just sort of stand by in a like Vanna White style while dudes point to various caskets <laughs> and yeah. are like this one. Um, and so like, speaking of the racism, the first, um, you know, the first suitor of Portia's that we see is the Prince of Morocco who shows up and like his first text is basically just like, don't think worse of me because I'm black. And then, then you're like, whoa. Portia's like, but I do. But I do. And this is the thing. So another uh another thing that this production that Tafana just did did which I was thinking about a lot during this because it's like normally the Prince of Morocco is the only is the only textually black character in the play but Mm -hmm. what part of what happened as we kind of transitioned to Belmont in act two mostly in in that production was like uh, that Nerissa was played by a black actor. I, which is kind of de rigueur. I haven't seen a white Nerissa right. in years. Which is crazy because it's like, so Portia, um, in this production, Portia was a, was a sort of um, uh, kind of kind of white passing like Latinx woman. Mm-hmm. And Nerissa was black. And also in this production, complicatedly, Shylock and Jessica and Tubal were black. And mm-hmm. that was a whole kind of other um, ingredient in the pot. But um 
but it's, it's complicated when you have a black Narissa because then she's present in the scene and then Portia is being super racist to someone in front of her black companion who then later in the play has to still be like best friends with her. So it's the black Hermia problem when you have Lysander's language about her being an Ethiop be explicitly and intentionally racist. And she like, just has to like take that and never address it or get to acknowledge it or. No, it's really, it way. it's really complicated. And it's one of these things where it's like, I understand directors and people's desire to like, you can make Portia racist because she already is like, we understand that. Yeah. But and also, it's important not to like erase that. It's thing. important not to erase it. But the, the complicating thing of a black Narissa is it's like, well, the complication you're creating is not for Portia, it's for Narissa. It's exactly. about how, how does this black woman then continue to be on perfectly good terms and like even like really fun girlish like gossipy like really yeah. good terms with this racist woman for on the entirety of acts three and four and five so and I think that that actually really connects to the other problem that emerges in the play in this I mean it, that, that is I mean this is just present to the play when you uh invest in the queerness as well yeah. is that if you really set up Antonio and Bassanio which is what this RSC production mm-hmm. that I was referring to did yeah the hollowness that now underpins Bassanio's relationships with Portia gets really problematic because like with Narissa where you're like oh yeah they're quote-unquote friends but actually Narissa knows she's racist and hates her you're like okay so none of this banter is real and none of this matters exactly and it's really easy to tip into something similar from the place of self-awareness that Bassanio begins with of like so we are watching these very long courtship scenes and in act three they get even longer Very and we'll talk long. about that and yeah. it's like you have to care so how do you care if you already know it's not real that's right that's and right I think it's that like, is a problem the play really sets up like I agree I agree I agree because you're constantly like how am I meant to watch how yes. am I watching and I because think that really yeah sorry mm-hmm. no go ahead no 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 you go I just think that that and that is like sort of the structural problem I'd love to hear like your thoughts as a director about the casket scenes, because yeah. there's this fairy tale quality. There's this, you know, we've got three caskets. We're going to have three suitors. We know yeah. the first two will fail. Of course. So how do you set up suspense through these long scenes yeah. Yeah. where you know what's coming? Yeah. yeah. Um, and hmm. I think that one of the problems, again, that uh, the play, one of the ways in which the play's own sort of racism and mm. problematic, you know, fact mm. that it's 500 years old has caught up with us is that- yeah when you underline um, Portia's racism towards Morocco, productions are really reticent to have the only textually black character also be an absolute buffoon, but textually he is. And so the thing that is meant to carry you through the scene is that Morocco is funny, but if you're not willing to make fun of Morocco because it is racist, um, like, I mean, the kind of depiction of him could come off that way. Then it's like, what are you left with? Like what truly, how is this scene functioning? What is any, how is any of this working on a dramaturgical level anymore? That's exactly right. It's like, what are we, what is the event of this? If we're not watching, if we're watching a thing that we know the courtship is going to come to nothing, of course, then what are we watching? No. And it's so, and it's interesting. So like the second suitor is uh, Spanish. Yes. And And it's fascinating to watch in productions when it's like, he'll come in and be white and they'll mock the heck out of him. Oh, completely. And then you're like, oh, so this is dramaturgically how these scenes are structured to work. Yeah, right. It's two silly men and then Bassanio. And um, right, which you can see Shakespeare being like a silly man, a silly man, the hero. And again, you get why people are like, wait, but like Portia's racist and we've underscored her racism. Like we don't want to then 
yeah. validate it by having him be a buffoon, but it's like, that's what the scene's doing. That's what, that's the racist scenario that Shakespeare has set up. Yeah, it's really difficult. And you know, what's funny is like, so uh, in the production, I just saw the 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 Spaniard, the second suitor had like a really thick, like Castilian Always. accent Always. because it's so funny. And also though, something that was funny was because this Portia was Latinx, they, they exchanged a couple words in Spanish. Ah. And so like at a certain moment, like she sort of like found a loophole where like he was doing some ridiculous shtick with like something and going on in Spanish. And then she like countered him in Spanish. And then he was like, oh my God, like it was like a whole funny (laughs) moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They had the whole beat. Um, But yeah, I don't even know. Like it's, it is really, really hard. And there's something like, you know, having just talked about Two Noble Kinsmen last week and the sense of ritual with the kneeling queens and the praying to the deities. And it's like, this is not different than that, you know, I mean, like, this, this heterosexuality in this context, and, you know, because she's, like, she's, like, a weird faraway princess, like, Mm -hmm. Belmont is, like, you know, and she's sort of, like, she's the golden fleece, they say in the first scene, right, and so it's, like, it's got this sort of mythic proportion to it, and I think that the scenes, almost invariably, because they're mad long, and because they're structurally so um, formal, the scenes have, like, a dreamlike quality, almost, it's, like, there's music. Yeah. There's music. It's like a, it's full fairy tale. And the thing I was thinking about is like the other kind of reminiscent element of that too, is that like elsewhere in act two, Lorenzo is, is uh, Rapunzeling Jessica out of Shylock's house. Like Lorenzo and his friends are literally like, she's climbing down a rope ladder. Yeah. You know? I was thinking that as well that, yeah, we're getting these two sort of, we're getting the fairy tale and we're getting the yeah. very sort of like classic mm-hmm. runaway stage romance of uh-huh. like I sneak you away from your father's house and disguise as a boy for truly no reason except for it's kind of sexy and like yeah yeah it's sort of like yeah it's a, a kind of like pastiche of these really really um ancient feeling kind mm-hmm. of fairy tale elements and but yeah and shot through with like weird humor that no longer makes sense and um, and it's really it's really complicated because it's one of those things where you set yourself up with you, you answer the demand to like, let the racism be visible, but then dramaturgically at your peril, because in the scene, you're supposed to laugh. And so it's really hard. Yeah. But I think it also just like structurally, even on its own terms, what we're setting Mm -hmm. up is this feeling of like the heterosexual relationships are this sort of bargain and game. And we get the recurrence of the image of chests, caskets between Portia, whose whole thing is surround, centered around these three, the gold, the silver, the lead casket, and also Jessica, who steals a bunch of her dad's money in yes. and throws it down to Lorenzo. And I've always wanted to see a production that really makes something of the fact that they could be the, the same object. God, you know? that's so good. And the yes. idea that for the women, it's about, you're, you're pursuing these women for their, for money, for, for the treasure, money. for the treasure chests that they both possess and mm-hmm. are themselves these treasures. Mm-hmm. That's a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you know, it's interesting because Portia is, is, uh, is given by her dead father in yeah. this obscure sort of terms. And what Jessica does is steal the money, the dowry from her father. And mm-hmm. her last line in that scene where she runs away is that thing of like, you know, um, she sort of whispers to herself some, I'm paraphrasing, but something yeah. that's basically like, you know, um, by dad, like, you, yeah, you, if my fortune is not crossed, yeah. uh, I have, you have a daughter, I have father, I have lost. father lost. That's right. And it's sort of like, uh, or might be father died. I forget the order. I don't have it. Yeah. Right <laughs> yeah. But it's like the goodbye to her dad and the acknowledgement of like, yeah, I'm what she's doing is, is, is 
by an acting agency romantically, she's robbing her own father, you know? And yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and there's such an obsession with the Jewess in this period and her sort of convertibility um, for lack of a better term, right. uh, the idea that, I mean, the complete lack of understanding that Judaism is matrilineal, so jokes on you, but uh, like, um, yeah, the idea that you can seduce away the women yeah. and that will sort of defang the threat of the uh-huh. Jew. Uh-huh. Um, no, it's, it's gnarly. It's, it's gnarly, but those are kind of the forces of act two. And I feel like we yeah. can kind of leap into act three from yeah. there. Um, I think, the one thing I would add as well is that, well, actually, no, this is leaping into act three, actually, yeah. is that on some level, Jess, yeah, Jessica cheats her dad and yeah. like steals from him. But also like you often see stagings and there's like readings of the way that Bassanio's choice goes that suggest that yes. Portia's cheating her dad as well and like helps Bassanio cheat. That's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, often yeah. will see it stage where she kind of directs him to make That's sure that he so makes the right choice because we, she, she sort of has mentioned him in the first scene. And yes. then like, it like comes up in act two that like, oh, Bassanio's coming. And she's like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I hope he picks it. Yeah. And that sort of, sorry, not to like derail a little bit, but like, mm. it's interesting that the kind of courtships in some way of both Jessica and Portia happen unseen. Whereas mm-hmm. we see all these scenes of interaction and intimacy and fun and play between the mm-hmm. men and get a really strong sense of the homosocial bond mm-hmm. as this social mm-hmm. glue and force in contrast to, again, yeah. your potential bond with women, which is all about venture and getting your hands on their chests. <laughs> you hey, no, that's, that's really, really good because what we see, what the play shows us is the, the, the final hurdle, the, the acquisition process, yes, yes. which is, which is not the same as no. the courtship process. It's and the yet, end game. And the yeah. only part that matters. And the only part that matters. Exactly. And so love and money, man. It's so, it's so what the play is. And so then we get into act three and as you said, brilliantly in the summary, uh, Shylock is in a bad mood because <laughs> his daughter has defected, run away from him, uh, with a Christian boy and also stolen, uh, all his money. And <laughs> He usually get there's like an incredibly affecting speech when Shylock's play it in a certain kind of way where he yeah. finds out, you know, he finds out she's like stolen a ring from him, like a jewel from him. And then he starts crying about the ring, but it's like, you know, he's crying about her and it's really yeah. sad. And it's that he was, it was, uh, I had it his, as my Leo when, she, when I was a bachelor, like it was his dead wife's <laughs> ring, yeah. like, yeah. And she stole it from him and it's so sad. Yeah. Oh, and it leads into the infamous "hath not a Jew eyes" like, mm-hmm. um, right speech, <laughs> right, right. And so you know, Shylock is in operating from a place of truly like of of uh, just like absolutely fierce loss, you yeah. know. And it sets him up for the rest of his the kind of the rest of his play, and also like explicitly in the play, like people make fun of him about Jessica running away, like people goad him about it. Yeah, it's like the talk of the town. We learn from right. our chorus of two gossips. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah so our- I mean, I think it's undeniable that there is like sympathy yes. here. Yeah, oh, yeah, it is made very Shakespeare makes it really clear where Shylock is coming from emotionally and that his yeah. desire for revenge is exacerbated by sadness. Yeah, yeah. And he's a broken hearted man and a lifetime point. of abuse by these people. Exactly. Um, and yeah, he has no vested interest in he has sort of nothing to lose. Like he has is no no vested interest left in the community at all. Yeah, I think that's really cute. Well, it's again, I mean, sort of like we were saying before, the sense of like he has no more futurity. 
That's right. His, his child is gone. Yeah. He has nothing left to give someday to this place. So why not mm. burn it all down? That's right. That's right. And so he's coming in hot from that place. And then on the other end, you know, the, um, what happens with Portia and Bassanio is like, okay, so he chooses right. And then the thing that really struck me about, like, we're saying the sort of the, the acquisition, the solemnization process is like when they agree to be married, this language about, so she gives him this ring that ends up being important later and ties all of her kind of emotional, whatever, in, you know, ties his fidelity to it. Like we see people do. Mm-hmm. And um, she says to him, this house, these servants, and this same myself are yours, my Lord. I give them with this ring, which when you part from, lose, or give away, let it presage the ruin of your love and be my vantage to exclaim on you. And it's so interesting to me because it's like the play, again, with these sort of fairy tale kind of ritualistic tropes baked into the agreement of heterosexual partnership is the like assumption of, of betrayal. Yes. Well, actually, I was just thinking this as you were reading it, partly because I'm working on Troilus and Cressida right now, and I'm so sorry for name dropping that. So inevitably, we're going to have to do it next. But (laughs) um, (laughs) it's an amazing play. Um, But also like thinking back on the Merry Wives of Windsor, it feels really different that for once it's she, the the man who is going to be the betrayer, the threat of infidelity lies in him, not in her. Yep. And usually, obviously, like much to do about nothing, everything mm-hmm. else, the winter's tale, Othello, the mm. fear is the woman straying. But suddenly in this world, it's Bassanio who's going, who's at risk of leaving the island and entering mm-hmm. the world and having too much fun with his first husband. Right, exactly. And the thing is, what's so kind of the, 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 the strange prophecy energy of it is, of course, mm-hmm. at this point in the play, Portia doesn't know about Antonio. No, she's you about know? to find out. She's about to find out because into this, yeah, well, sort of into this, into this moment comes, you know, the guy with the letter that is Antonio, like, you know, I'm about to die and I need you to save me. Yeah. And I think I need to, I skipped over it by accident, but just to mm. pop back to act two, when we were talking yeah. about how Solanio and Salarino, Solerio, whatever, the two S's, um, the salads, uh, talk, pop up sometimes to kind of give us updates because what's been happening again in the background is Antonio Mm -hmm. has all his ships have shipwrecked. And so he's (laughs) lost all his money, which is why he can't pay Shylock back in time. And they're also kind of spreading news of like, oh yeah, and Bassanio has gone to Belmont. Things are going well with Bassanio. One of the things they say about Antonio is I think he only loves the world for him. And that's, Antonio re Bassanio, just dropping in these reminders of how mm-hmm. important Bassanio is to Antonio in an apparently one-sided way until now. Right, right. And so, and also it's like the, the, um, there is something, uh, dramaturgically satisfying, fulfilling about the simultaneity of Bassanio falls in love with the girl over here. All of your fortunes are racked and you have no money. Like mm-hmm. in, Anto- in the symmetry in Antonio's life is like, he loses his love and he loses his money at the same time. Yeah. It's sort of like he, he, he got, he got jilted and lost his dowry. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of, and of course, like the, those things happening at the same time force the kind of choice-making that acts four and five are, are sort of about, but the letter that Antonio sent to Bassanio that gets delivered to Bassanio in this scene mm-hmm. right yeah. when they're like let's go get married and they're like en route to the altar yeah and then this letter comes and messenger. the text yeah, can I read letter. can I read first Portia's description of Bassanio reading the letter yes and then you can tell us what the letter says yes. so 
he gets the letter. He's kind of standing off to the side, reading it in a classic Shakespeare fashion. She tells us things that are impossible for an actor to do. Um, She says, there are some shrewd contents in yon same paper that steals the color from Bassanio's cheek. Some dear friend dead, else nothing in the world could turn so much the constitution of any constant man. Is Bassanio a constant man? Separate question. But um, yeah, yeah, just the, setting it up is like, oh, he's got news that someone's died. There's literally nothing else that is sufficiently dramatic for the way he's reacting to this visually. That's right. That's right. And then... Um, and just sorry to pause to contrast it with how staid and boring the yeah. casket scene is up to this oh, point. The complete lack of passion from either of them yes. in terms of how they talk about how they feel about each other, how they are described as physically reacting to like the supposed tension of this choice that will result in like his death if he chooses wrong. It's like, this is the first mm-hmm. like dramatic physical response anyone has garnered from anyone in this scene. And it's Bassanio receiving the letter from Antonio. 1000%. And so it's sort of like a triptych in my mind. We have that piece from Portia that you just read. And then, so two, two pieces of text I want to read here. Bassanio, Bassanio turns to Portia and says, when I told you my state was nothing, I should then have told you that I was worse than nothing. For indeed, I have engaged myself to a dear friend engaged my friend to his mere enemy to feed my means. Here is a letter, lady, the paper as the body of my friend and every word in it, a gaping wound issuing life blood. And so everything we've been talking about, I was thinking too about two gentlemen when we were talking about letters and objects being the person, being the body of the, of the like beloved friend and the Mm -hmm. thing of like, and it's also so Christy even here for him to be like, this letter's full of holes. They're all bleeding. Like it reminds me of the, I can't remember the name, the fabric that the face. Yeah. Yeah. uh Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. So there's like all of this, but yeah, this passion that you just mentioned, like that's what he says. It's so intense. So the letter itself, Antonio says, Sweet Bassanio, my ships have all miscarried, my creditors grow cruel, my estate is very low, my bond to the Jew is forfeit, and since in paying it, it is impossible I should live, all debts are cleared between you and I, if I might but see you at my death. Notwithstanding, use your pleasure. If your love do not persuade you to come, let not my letter. That is astonishing. He's so passive aggressive. Oh my God, he's the worst. I mean, again, I cannot stand him. Like, he's so annoying. I'm I sorry. Love him. I love him. But I mean, that's the thing of like that. This, the thing that. If my that love you, cannot persuade you, let my letter. If you don't want to come, then don't, don't come. come. But also, like, the. the I'm not going to beg. If you, if you love me, I'm going to die for you. If you love me, show up. If you don't, don't, don't come. bother. But yeah, oh my God. I mean, the thing about queer suffering that you read is just so, I can't stop thinking about it because everything Antonio does is just like, it's so dramatic. It's so funny. But also though, like, I can't I mean, help it's but a think- way. Oh no, sorry, you go first. Well, I can't help but think about the thing from, from, from uh, Two Noble Kinsmen that we were talking about, about being in your lover's arms at the moment of your death, about like, close my eyes. Like what he's asking for is like, show up and watch me die for you. Well, in, in a way, isn't it like all these ideas of like your venture and your children and your future? It's mm-hmm. like, I can't give birth for you, but I can die for you. I can die for you. And this is the the form of life that I, as a man can give another man. That's right. And it's also like, it will only matter if you come witness it. Yeah. Because only then is it for you. Right. If it's just like, if it's not taking place on the stage, right. That, that Antonio 
yeah framed himself as an actor upon it's like it has to be the full that's so good yeah it has to be given unto Bassanio and the only way that can happen is by him witnessing it every man must play his part and mine a sad one and it is just I mean yeah the whole thing is just like the most if but all debts are cleared between you and I if I might but see you at my death is literally the exchange of like I need to be like what Mm -hmm. I did this for it you can pay me back by which by watching me yeah yeah you know well again it's like this is the future that I have given you like this was my gamble this was my venture that I set forth and yes it will have succeeded if it leads to your future right and so like sweet god that's dramatic so and then (laughs) obviously he leaves immediately and what happens what's interesting is like at this point, Portia's all on board. She's like, take the money. That's nothing to me. Yeah. 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 She literally is like, take all my money, go save your friend. And like we said, just to set us up for before we rock into act four, it's like critically, she says, let's go over here and let the priest pronounce us husband and wife. And then you go immediately to Venice and save your friend. But she is very deliberately like, but we are getting married first. But it is this thing of like, it's, it's a, we're, it's so interesting to me. It's we're getting married first but then go right away. So he has Mm -hmm. the title of a husband when he leaves, but hasn't, it's not consummated. Right. But it is again, but it's like, it's yeah, this tension. Cause it's like, she seems to recognize like the marriage must happen. I can't let him go unmarried. (laughs) Untethered. Right. Yeah. But But, it's not finished. Yeah. And I guess maybe that is what the ring Mm -hmm. stands for is the promise of like, I'm going to be the one to do it. You're not going to go consummate with Antonio. I have the security of knowing. Yes. You've made this promise. So we've got all the promises lined up. We've got all the promises lined up. And of course, after Bassanio is like, thanks so much, babe, I'm out. Um, We also have uh, she and Nerissa (laughs) follow in disguise. Like she actually doesn't like the trust is performative I mean the trust is in name only like she <laughs> yes, follows true. him she you know what I mean she, no she doesn't she's like actually like put on this suit and wig real fast and let's go yeah I mean I'm like I honestly like I don't know what to make I mean I think I know what to make of Jessica and mm-hmm. not Jessica I don't know what to make of Jessica disguising herself as a boy I think it's yeah. just kind of a titillating thing to be honest um yeah and it's clearer with Portia and Narissa in the sense of like just really driving home that it's like the world where anything real happens is the homosocial world. That's if right. you want to have any influence on Bassanio, if you want to have mm-hmm. any impact on this relationship and participate mm-hmm. in the things that matter in his life in any way, you need to be a man. And as his wife, all you can do is give him money. That's right. That's right. And the thing is, like, as we as we interact for, like you said, it's the big honking set piece of the play. It's one huge scene. It's the room where it happens. <laughs> and so, you know, it is the thing of like to enter that room, you have to be a young dude (laughs) so so it really is just the function of like let's get ready to enter that room yeah and but like also that yeah again that it's like that is you have to I mean yeah I think in a way the rumor happens is exactly the thing it's just like you're irrelevant as a woman no and your marriage that you just went to all these pains for means nothing yes it's not the relationship that matters in any way to the ongoing future of his life and I guess that's why you need the ring because it's like I have to have some way of ensuring I understand Mm -hmm. what's happening when I'm not there Mm -hmm. with these relationships that clearly mean more to you than this one does. And I think what's common in a lot of stagings now is part of the trial is 
Portia learning how little her marriage means to Bassanio. I mean, yeah. And so it's a fascinating, so here we come act four. This is the big one. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a courtroom drama. The, this, <laughs> this, the settings are, you know, everything gets set up. Antonio, well, Shylock comes in from the very beginning. The judge presiding is like, you are being a stone cold bitch and you should rethink your life <laughs> to yes. Shylock. Like he's basically like, this is too much and you need to stand down. And I think that like one thing I really want to highlight because I think it's so like contemporary feeling is that in act three, mm-hmm. one of the issues when like Bassanio's in, or not Bassanio, I keep mixing up their names. Antonio <laughs> is in jail and there's yes. this like weird scene where like he tries to talk to Shylock and Shylock's like, I'm not talking to you. I don't care what you have to say and keeps interrupting him and won't listen. <laughs> yep. And then also just to like sidebar is explicitly like, you know, you called me dog before you had cause. If I'm a dog, beware my fangs. And then Antonio is like, hmm, it must be because I helped out people that he put into debt. It's like, no, he just said <laughs> no. it's because you were anti-Semitic to him for no reason. And now he hates you. And um, like, yeah, kicked him and spat on him yeah, and like, like all of this shit. He's, he's been very clear even to your face about what this yeah. is about, sir. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one of the salads is like, the problem is Venice's economic system relies on foreigners thinking they're going to get treated fairly by the legal system. So if we screw him to help you, we won't be able to sort of present ourselves as a safe place to come trade and our economy will collapse. Everything is money. It's so- Everything is money, but also just the sort of vaguely xenophobic of like, you know, the woke police means we have to treat him well. It's so annoying. Like, I just found that that just really jumped out at me as like the sort of, I wish we could just screw him, but- but well, we can't you have to be nice of, to the Jews these days because of the economy, because of the economy. Um, yeah. I just found that really interesting. And so that's, that's the kind of tension that I think carries into the beginning of the trial where everybody's trying to persuade Shylock, but everybody, including Shylock, is really aware that the law is on his side. Yeah, yeah And it's yeah. actually very important for the city yeah. not to just have a show trial. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. And Shylock sort of comes in on top in a way because, you know, anything and it's 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 striking that to what you're saying, the judge isn't saying like there's no intimidation of the character of like you're going to lose. Everybody is basically like, we know the law is on your side. Please don't. It's just pleading. Everybody is like, please don't do this. I mean, this is the thing. And again, this is why it's fundamentally important that Shylock's Jewish. It's about mercy. It's the question that is at the heart of like early modern concepts of anti-Semitism is like, are Jews capable of mercy? mercy. Or is that something that you have to be Christian to enact and understand? Right. And so like, and of course, because he comes into the scene with everything, the loss of Jessica, the loss of his fortune, all of that behind him, it's like, he's truly a man who gives no fucks anymore. And so they're like, please don't. And he's like, truly fuck yourself. Like I have, like, I have been all over it. Like I've read all, like everything is on my side. Yes. Which is, sorry, not to like get into mm -hmm. like, but another essential element of, I mean, frankly, contemporary ideas, uh, anti-Semitic ideas of Jews are law obsessed. Judaism as a religion is a religion about following rules and laws Mm. and at the mm-hmm. expense of sort of human compassion. Um, That's such an important and kind of nuanced idea to think about over it because yeah, it's like he comes in certain of his rightness, but even the way that he's certain of his rightness is part of an anti-Semitic caricature. Yeah, it's like, it's in my books. It's in the it's law. It's in my books, I know, right. And right, so everybody is just sort of waiting to see what he's gonna do. They bring Antonio in 
in he's already like looking and feeling very Christy. He's enjoying his, 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 his passion of suffering. Yeah. His passion. Exactly. And so Bassanio shows up and it's just like, Oh my God, dude. And so like they, you know, there's a lot of like tender kind of, um, there's a lot of tender exchange. And then the mechanism of the court, which I'm sure everybody's aware of, but the mechanism is they're like, we've called for this learned old doctor of the law to come and advise and speak to this. And then they get a letter, which is obviously fake, that is from <laughs> the doctor where the doctor is like, I'm sick, I sent a kid. And I'm then- sick. Right. And then Portia, Nerissa comes in dressed as like a clerk, you know, and is like, this young doctor uh, is here. And they're like, okay, see, send him in. And then Portia, as a young, you know, doctor of law, presents mm-hmm. the letter from the old doctor and the judge reads it and is like, seems legit. <laughs> like, yeah. And now podium, son. <laughs> Portia's in charge of the trial for no reason. And now Portia's in charge um, of the trial. And I will say that in, in the Tifana production, it was one of the most successful pieces of Shakespeare drag I've ever seen. Oh. Especially because, you know, it's one of those hard things where like, of course, as constantly happens in Shakespeare, people have to appear before their own, uh, you know, betrothed or in, you know, <laughs> in a the- different everyone is in Shakespeare's face blind. Face blind, yeah. Right, exactly. It's the old face blind problem, except for in this one. I actually did a double take because they had played Portia so glam. You know, she was so femme, so, you know, long, beautiful hair. She had all these sort of gowns and heels. Like, she was very, Mm -hmm. very femme. And then the suit and the wig was so good. I I literally wasn't sure it was the same actor. That's awesome. It was insane. That's great. Yeah, it was insane. Like just the wig, the wig was good enough and it changed her face enough. And also her manner was so different. I was Mm. like, oh, got it. Okay, this actually can work as a piece of drama. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, I think think that the question of how aware a production wants you to be that Mm -hmm. Portia is watching, especially as, so what happens is, um, Bassanio shows up and is like, cancel the trial. Here's your money. Mm-hmm. And problem solved. And Shylock is like, no, I want the letter of the contract I made. I want right. the pound of flesh. I don't care. And that's yeah. what everybody's trying to persuade him is like, you're being vengeful. Stop being vengeful. Just take the money and go. Um, money. Yeah. And so Portia comes up to, to try to like adjudicate that dilemma. Yes. And Shylock is intractable. Um, and Bassanio and Antonio kind of get increasingly tender with one another, especially again, as in many stagings, he gets his shirt stripped off very slowly so that he can have his flesh cut. They'll often like stretch his arms out and tie him up in like a Christ pose and a Christ figure, you know, um, Bassanio is there. And again, yeah, the question of like, how much does a production maintain the constant awareness of Portia's presence in witnessing all this? Um, and there's a line that, uh, Bassanio has laid on where he says, you know, they're kind of giving their farewells because he's not going to survive this. Yeah, it's this. He says, Antonio, I am married to a wife, which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all. I sacrifice them all here to this devil to deliver you. And Portia does respond to this. And in an aside, we are made aware of her overhearing this, but I think it's, yeah, an interesting directorial question of like, is that a little blip of like, oh, right. She's listening. Or have you been made constantly aware? Yes. Yes. Her seeing this unfold. All of it. Exactly right. Exactly right. I pulled that text too, and also a piece of Antonio's. So when, as you say, they get kind of more and more tender with each other. Antonio has text to Bassanio where he says, commend me to your honorable wife 
tell her the process of Antonio's end, say how I loved you, speak me fair in death, and when the tale is told, bid her be judge, whether Bassanio had not once a love. And, <laughs> and she's right there listening to that. And so I think the best version of the scene, uh, you know, in, in that score is to keep us all aware of her listening and watching as much as possible. And it's, I would be curious if we should, I mean, we should talk about where the intimacy happens, like where, yeah. yeah. So the way that they did it, I'd be curious if the RSC production did it in the same spot. So the way yeah. that they did it in the in the Tafana production is that pretty much right after the piece of text you just read, the Bassanio, you know, thing, like in the moment where it really looks like it's going to happen, <laughs> like everybody is like, OK, well, we've tried, but there's no one can stop him. This is going down. Um, he's gonna get led away for the actual cutting of the flesh to happen like you know he's gonna get like strapped to a chair and it's gonna happen so this is like the final farewell moment and pretty much right after that Bassanio was like as people came in to sort of pull Antonio away they were kind of kneeling in front of each other and Bassanio um uh sort of grabbed him and they had a really intense kiss Mm -hmm. and of course Portia is right there watching they don't know she's there they're crying and then the way that it affected the next thing the next chunk of the scene is that then when the judge turns to her and is like kid is there any remedy and she's like nope he has to die yeah that's exactly exactly what the rsc did is that then the she kind of the the her treatment of shylock became the sublimation of her like fury and and sadness over the realization that her marriage is a sham basically and it was very clearly like um yeah there was just like a very clear emotional line drawn between that was what she was sort of acting out on Shylock which in a way sort of like did displace her anti-semitism in like a really interesting way like that didn't feel super relevant to what was happening it was fully about mm-hmm. this betrayal that she just had to secretly metabolize exactly right Right. Well, and it's also like, it it was not in this production. It was like, not just her treatment of Shylock, but like her treatment of Antonio, like in a way, like like, in a moment at first, she's like, great, he's going to die. This is I'm saved. And then she kind of came to the realization of like, I can't let this happen. Exactly. Um, But but I still have all these feelings I need to like get out on somebody. Right. And it's like for a second, it seems like she's going to side with Shylock and let it happen. Yes. Because she's like, actually, no, he's totally right. Go for it. And you're like, Jesus. But then she thinks better of it. Yeah. Does again, from my perspective, like from from watching this as a Jewish person and partly like, well, that does make her bait and switch on Shylock feel a little less horrible because it's just not. So when you see it and it's just about Shylock, it's just this horrible moment where she's like, lets it for no reason lets the suspense build and then pulls the rug out it purely kind of it mm-hmm. feels for the purpose of humiliating Shylock as much as possible right, um, right. so Whereas, it does kind of make the moment right. about something else right I mean it makes it about yeah it may instead makes it about for a second she's like I'm gonna kill I'm gonna let my my husband's lover die yeah because because I'm so because I'm in so much pain and then after a second she's like wait no I can't let him die and so the way the way this production sort of dealt with it is she had this giant book in front of her and in the moments where they were about to stab Antonio she was like really but it then sets you up the problem mm. I mean so it, it in a way I feel like this emotional space is present in the text like I don't yeah. think that this is something that is kind of being laid onto it absurdly at all because it leads into 
than um, Portia approaching uh, Bassanio and setting up this trap of being like, hello, I'm a young lawyer. And the only reward I want is, ooh, that lovely ring you have. And Antonio is the one who then has to be like, Bassanio is like, nah, no, 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 I can't, I can give you anything but that. And then Antonio's like, dude, he's asking for one thing, give it to him. Um, And so there's something again, sort of in that Antonio is of course the mechanism of this betrayal. And then- in a really interesting way becomes the mechanism of forgiveness in act five as well. But kind of, I think the difficulty that I had in this RSC production, and as we talked about before, the kind of danger dramaturgically is if you make, Uh if you have completely obliterated Portia and Bassanio's relationship in this scene, then what is act five about? Right. And so, and also, so like, you know, the, but again, I think that's kind of what happens. Like, I think this is, is a problem with the play. This is unlike the anti-Semitism stuff. This is like, yeah. this is the problem of the Merchant of Venice as Shakespeare wrote it. Absolutely. And so what happens is like, it's right. It's after she has seen and heard everything she's seen and heard. And Shylock, of course, exits the scene totally broken because he's been court ordered to give up his land, his house and his whatever. Um, you know, the last little beat is her. And it's a great and kind of like, psychologically realistic feeling you know piece of acting like piece of writing for her like having seen everything she comes forward and is like okay one last test you know kind of thing of like let's just really test and then of course if Antonio can persuade him to give up the ring it is all as she feared and so what happens in act five is everybody sort of sadly and separately trickles back to Belmont yeah and and she has to spring the trap of like where's your ring right and the only like the only thing that's left to organize because all of the main, the dramatic danger is over. This is actually in a way why it's such a gay play is because, you know, it's like the, the mechanism of the plot is dealt with by the end of act four. Right. We have act five, right. To, to adjudicate who gets to keep Bassanio. Exactly. And Bassanio, as we said, having come to this delayed realization of, in fact, he is emotionally torn between these two people having previously thought he could, easily balance the kind of mercenary and the not mm. having to give up Bassanio having to oh my god someday yeah. having <laughs> to give up Antonio even supposedly in name only is harder yeah. than he thought it would be and now his solution is to kind of bring him home with him yeah. and like in to try to integrate him into the marriage kind and of, I yeah. guess that's like in a way what Portia's finding a way to do too because again it's like they it's, oh, it's just such an annoying scene. It goes on forever. And it's like, we know that this is all a lie. And she's like, I'll never speak to you again until I, I'm going to go sleep with that lawyer. And Nerissa and Graciano for absolutely no reason have done a parallel trick just yeah. for symmetry. And like, she's like, and I'm going to sleep with the clerk. Yeah, uh, it's, the, it's the most. And then um, it's Antonio who kind of steps forward to be like, don't mm-hmm. do this. It was for me. He did it all for me. Which of course um, <laughs> he doesn't know is all making it worse. Isn't helpful, but she still responds by saying, okay, in that case, give him this ring and this will be the new pledge. And it's the same ring. And it's like, of oh my course. God, it's my ring. And I was the lawyer and everything finally gets explained. I was the lawyer. But the way, the way that it, if you carry on the storytelling that you've done in act four by making the romance explicit. And so mm-hmm. now if you've created a story where, Portia sees this happen and in retrospect in act five when they find out she was the lawyer 
they realize what she's seen. Right. Then, yeah, it becomes a scene about like, it's, it's, it's interesting because textually and in a more conventional or like a more kind of bland, um, straight reading of it, which like how, why, but, um, instead of it being about like, you betrayed me, you didn't prize me enough, you, whatever. It's like, it's literally a scene about her telling them that she knows. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the way that like, you kind of see it done in productions that don't excavate this. I mean, I barely want to call it subtext, but exactly queer energies is like, that it just like it, Antonio as the kind of ring bearer is yes. like this non-entity who just like the fact that it's Antonio is a formality. Any character could have been like, oh, Portia, don't do this. And like, it almost becomes a way of extricating Antonio from the dynamic by having him mm-hmm. give mm. sort of his piece of Bassanio to Portia. Yeah. But instead, when you when you really acknowledge kind of what happened in the trial scene which is that yeah. Bassanio does pick Antonio yeah, over he does pick Antonio. that is the problem is that yeah. like he even though he didn't want to give away the ring he didn't need to give away the ring he'd already done it well and here's the thing about them being married but not consummated before the trial and everything that you set up so brilliantly at the beginning with like the rights of marriage and everything. yeah well it's like Bassanio and Antonio are married too well, and also they're married, they're married in a physical way first. Like Antonio gives Bassanio his body first. Yeah. I mean, and like, I think, you know, you kind of have to get into like the weird queerness of anti-Semitism itself when it's like, how are you mm. not thinking about circumcision when you're thinking about the pound of flesh? Like, God, you yes. know, <laughs> yeah. there's all this kind of energies and what Shylock is trying to do to Antonio that feels a bit queer that and also like therefore what kind mm. of sexualized violation mm. Antonio is willing to take on for Bassanio, for Bassanio sure, in plate yeah. like his version of the consummation and you're right like it kind of does and doesn't happen first yes exactly and it's sort of like by the time like that's the sense that's so complicating is like by the time Bassanio returns to Belmont he's sort of already married and he's Mm -hmm. coming back with the person he's married to and meets her on the steps. And it's interesting because they all meet, like they meet outside, I think too. Mm -hmm. They haven't even entered the house together. They just meet in the grounds and are like, and in a way I love that because it's like, we have to settle this before we go into the house. Like we have to figure out who's married to who before we enter. Well, we have to know who can kind of go into the marriage bedroom. Exactly. Is it going to be, which two of us will it be or will it somehow be all three of us? And I think that like, unlike some of these plays that propose these interesting thruples and combinations, I think the text of Merchant of Venice really kind of leaves us, does Antonio walk into the house with them? That's right. That's the choice to make. And so um, how did they do it at the end of the RFC? Um, Portia went off alone. She sort of stormed off by herself, sadly. (gasps) And then Bassanio kind of trailed after her and Antonio as I recall, I should have checked this, was left alone on stage as he had begun on stage, but there was very much not a sense of any of the couples remaining constituted. So that's fascinating. So um, just how, you know, all productions do different things. What happens at the end of the, of the Tifana production is um, Portia and Bassanio exit together and mm-hmm. Antonio exits alone. But first, like Antonio mm-hmm. leaves them 
Yeah. And like, cause he's also like in that production, he had like brought luggage, like Bassanio mm. brought, he has a bag. So and so like, it was yeah. clear that Bassanio was like, Antonio, my dude who I rescued, he's here with his luggage. Like he's come to stay. Yeah. And then at the end of the scene, he sort of like, yeah, like gives him back to her, you know, and kind of takes his bag and goes, and then they mm-hmm. go into the house together. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I mean, I think it, yeah, it feels really open to deciding. Mm-hmm which way it goes. But I think the point that we're making is like, you have to decide that is actually the mm-hmm. conflict of like, how does the ring, what does the ring symbolize in a way? Yeah. What choice has Bassanio actually made and how successful is um, Portia in kind of enforcing his chastity, like enforcing his faithfulness mm-hmm. to her through this symbol? Does That's it work? Right. And I think whichever way it goes, it is gay. One thing it is, is gay. And anti-Semitic. And (laughs) anti-Semitic. But side by side, gay. Gay. I mean, it's a really gay, it's a really, really gay play. And it actually is like, the more you think about Mm -hmm. it, the more baffling it is that that, I mean, I get why you've, we've been really distracted by the other elements of it, but I know that is very, very there. And it's hard very to there. avoid or understand how the play works without it. 100%. So at the end of each episode, live on the air, we, and every week Emma makes a face of despair. We decide what play we are going to talk about next week. I won't lie. I am kind of leaning towards Torres and Cressida, both uh, for the sense of letters as people yeah. and the ideas about chastity and um commerce there's a lot there's a lot of resonance there it's a great play sorry yeah it's it's a uh it's yeah 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 take me there let's do it let's do it fantastic we will see you in two weeks time for troilus and cressida in the meantime you can find us on instagram and the shakespeare is gay or on Twitter at this shakes is gay. That's S H A X. And of course, you can find us wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, where we hope you will subscribe, leave a rating and a review. We would really appreciate the support, and we will see you soon. And goodbye.